We shall continue our sermon sessions in the Gospel of John. And today, Lord willing, we shall bring to completion the Gospel in chapter 21, verses 1 through verse 25. This here portion of Scripture is within the context of time in which the Christ had risen from the dead and had shown himself alive and walking among the living. And there were witnesses to that effect, and these accounts, of course, reveal that truth, that tangible eyewitness truth that a man was crucified, gave up his spirit, was placed into a tomb, known to be dead, now risen. It's uh, quite an interesting account. And there has been beforehand and afterwards accounts of such things to take place, only to be revealed as myth. Uh, or fanciful story or tales, if you will. However, the account of the Christ, of this man named Jesus, is a tangible evidence which can be found in an honorable court of law and defended accordingly. Uh, and that is an important detail of our faith. We do not believe in things which keep us blind. We believe in things which have true, authentic, genuine, recognized evidences. The faith that is spoken, the faith that the scriptures reveal, as per the Hebrew writer, can certainly be cultivated, nourished, and amplified when we recognize what is created pointing to a Creator, leading us to the communicative power of His law of liberty. And here we find ourselves, throughout a great journey of the text, the holy text, the time-tested and proven inspired God-breathed literature, the penmanship of the Holy Spirit. John, the conduit, and we began this journey, of course, now, ooh, March of 2022. And today we bring it to its fulfillment of this gospel. And what a wonderful journey it has been. We've gotten to know Jesus, the man. And that is indeed what is missing in the hearts of those who seek to believe and have hope. Is the true, genuine knowledge of Christ, His nature, who He was. Because out there in the realm of the, uh, or within the realm of men's minds, as they create Christianity in their own image, they misguide us in the person, Jesus. Yet when we go to the inspired text, witnessed account in the first century, first-hand revelation, we can know Jesus, who He was as a man, and who He was as God on earth. And that itself, to me, 
has brought a greater strength and faith in this man named Jesus. And I know it has to you as well. And that, again, I express, has been greatly missed out there in the ocean of what we call Christendom, for the most part. So in this final chapter, the Christ, in this context, is going to appear yet again to his disciples, to a portion of his disciples. And there is going to be interaction between him and his disciples, more so pointedly, Peter. And this would not be the first time that he appears or reveals himself to them. He had done so in the chapter we had looked at last week. Christ conquering death, having overcome the shackles of death. He was without sin. Sin is the purpose in which keeps us dead in this fallen world. But through Christ we have, of course, the uh, opportunity to raise with him and have hope, not only in this life, but in the afterlife. And so once the things had been spoken in chapter 20, in direct context and connection to that chapter, we find ourselves in verse 1 of chapter 21, which says, and I quote, After these things, what things? The things that had taken place in chapter 20. And here, a bit of a side note excursion for your thought. The reason we are learning such depth of the text is because we're going through it verse by verse. Now, I have for many years behind the pulpit proclaimed in a point-form sermon, which is very valuable and useful in its given times and purposes. Yet it is my honest opinion that when we dive deep into the text from one verse to the next, we truly get to open up the landscape of the first century and who these men were and how they operated together under the socio-political powers and uh, policies of their day and also the religious landscape of their entourage and beliefs. And that allows us such a greater depth of faith and understanding practical application to our daily lives. So after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Verse 2, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee. We remember Cana of Galilee, the location in which Jesus had turned the water into wine. Many seeing had certainly been pierced and challenged in how a man could perform something supernatural, for nothing supernatural, no divine intervention had happened to mankind for 400 years, four centuries before God came in Direct divine intervention yet again. So a bit of note for your thought in that location in Cana in Galilee. And the sons of Zebedee, verse 2 continues to reveal, and two others of his disciples were together. So we have seven disciples at this here time period, which is seen chronological to the manner of the pen, and they are together, and Simon Peter said to them in verse 3, I am going fishing. 
And they said to him, We also come with you. Or we will also come with you to go fishing. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. We take a break. We allow ourselves to understand what is taking place. Now, a great many scholars and a great many, uh, uh, um, if you will, uh, brethren uh, who might have written commentaries and things of that kind would take the position that Peter and the disciples at this time simply kind of rejected and neglected their faith and their duty and purpose and commission for the Christ. Basically, hey, listen, we got to go back to work. We're, you know, we can't, we got, we got to move on. Somehow a breach of faith has taken place within them that would have them say, I'm giving up on the gospel plan and I'm just going to go back to, you know, what I know doing, which is fishing. I'm a fisherman. I'm going to go back to the boat. We're going to go fishing again. And you'll find scholars and you'll find commentaries to that persuasion, to that interpretation. It is my kind and loving, respectful plea to you that that does not seem to fit the context in which things are taking place. And if you reason with me within this court of honor, why would men who have seen, eyewitnessed fact, Christ walking among them from the dead, having been taught ministry for three years in direct authority somehow now say we're giving up on that and we're going to just let it all go in order to go fishing. It seems out of place to me that this would be somehow a sign of neglect or reject of the gospel, though some may say that that is the case. There is scriptural evidence, actually, to the fact that this was not in a negative format, but rather a positive one, which is, while we can't remain idle, we've been commanded to work, we have to provide, we have to eat, and fishing was indeed a manner in which provision would be the channel it took. And it would be quite common for a fisherman, and if you know fishermen, they love what they do. And they want to do what they love doing. And fishing is a way that provides not only food, but it pays the bills, right? It generates income. And so this is what they are doing. This is where they are at. It is not a matter at all of being against Jesus. Though Peter, we know, had since denied the Christ and had fallen into deep sorrow over the act of denying the Christ. And we spoke about the motive behind his denial. Some scholars would say it was cowardice. We explored another angle, how that did not seem to fit the context, but rather that Peter, as a friend of the Christ, was seeking perhaps to gain curious information so as to rescue him from perhaps danger. Whatever the motive behind the action, the action was lawless, and it was against Christ. He denied the Christ. So Peter is in a position in which, of course, this sorrow remains within him that he had denied Jesus. And so there are all these things that we bring to our memory that we have been reading throughout these chapters, leading to this very moment. 
So Simon Peter says to them, I am going fishing. Well, yeah, Simon Peter is a fisherman. He's going to go fishing. He has to pay the bills. He wants to eat. And they would definitely do so at night because at night was the time that the fishies would be more so prone to being caught in the net. But yet when they went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Verse 3 would reveal, they caught nothing, no fish. Interesting. But when the day was now breaking, so this is throughout the process of the night, the evening, day is now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And of course, if you seek geographical location, your Bibles may have maps or whatnot, and you can study those things on your own independently. Christ, of course, in this location, the Sea of Tiberias, Galilee and whatnot, you can see there's a body of water there and you can see the shores and kind of gives you a visual of the location. You can even visit those ancient worlds, that ancient time, uh, uh, to, uh, even in our uh, day and age. But when the day was now breaking, it says in verse 4, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, he speaks to them in verse 5 and says, Children... You do not have any fish, do you? Of course, Jesus knows the answer to that. He's not learning anything. He's teaching them something, and they answered him, no. So they are close enough by to have dialect and understand the audio sound of the communicative word, and they are the recipients, and they return an engagement and say, no, we don't have any fish. And so he said to them in verse 6, cast the net, on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Again, it could have been very tempting for Peter, the alpha male, the strong, masculine type, to have said, leave us alone. I've been a fisherman for years. I know what I'm doing. There's just no fish, and I'm tired, and I want to go away. And I want to... Well, no, he, of course, abides by this information. And in Greek mythology, casting on the right side or speaking of the right side would be what we commonly say, would commonly say, do that on the right side, you'll be more lucky. You'll have more luck. Now, luck, of course, is a common word we utilize. It's not based in accuracy or fact. It's, it is from Greek mythology, but that's not what Jesus is saying here, right? Jesus is not saying, hey, just do that. Out of sheer luck, you might get some fish. Of course not. The purpose is quite simple, really. The fish are going to be on the right side of the boat. I put them there, miraculously. And so if you want them, you have to cast your net on the right side of your boat. So let us not keep, think too deeply on that end. I think the Holy Spirit penned down the information because Christ had purposed it to be found on the right side. So cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. When Jesus tells you to do a thing a certain way, just do it. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of the fish. Truly remarkable, a witnessed and recorded account of something supernatural, something that could not be explained through the scientific model of natural realm. It cannot. It is something that has broken the stream of natural occurrences like a fracture and inserted something supernatural. 
How can this be? Well, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, in verse 7, that being John, the one who wrote this gospel, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Oh, Peter. You gotta love Peter. I associate a great many ways and personalities to Peter. Peter is a wonderful man, but he's quite abrupt, isn't he? And he has many knee-jerk reactions to a great many things. And at times he would speak out of turn, and at times the things he would say were quite foolish in the mind of God, as we can find ourselves today oftentimes practicing as well. Yet here he is now. He was in the clothing appropriate for his practice, and when you're fishing on a boat, you have to have agility and physical awareness, so you can't have any clothing geeing your way in some kind of a pretzel knot, keeping you away from getting the fish and the net and the, all of it together, if you will, micromanaging the moment. So Peter was with lack of clothing in order to produce or perform his task to fish. And when he knew that was Jesus, his mind, his passion, his emotion immediately got the uh, uh, best of him, and he sought to immediately clothe himself in proper, modest attire in order to go speak to Jesus and make his way to Jesus, which is kind of interesting because one would think if you were taking off your clothing in order to be able to have more agility to work, you would think the same way if you're going to jump in the water and swim. But it shows also a side to Peter's awareness, if you will, uh, to that end, how he should present himself to the master. So therefore, John says to Peter, hey, listen, that's Jesus, it's the Lord. And when Peter hears that, he jumps in the water after having, of course, clothed himself properly. But the other, verse 8, the other disciple, this is John, came in the little boat. So John doesn't jump in the water along with Peter. John's going to stay in the boat and come in with the fish. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out of the land, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. A very welcoming sight after a full night of work with no catch, and now all of a sudden a massive catch. And here we find nourishment, we find a welcoming, hospitable uh, situation, and... Uh, quite warm and comforting, no doubt. So when they got out of the land, they saw the charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them in verse 10, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Bring some of that. And Simon Peter went up in verse 11 and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many the net was not torn. Some individuals have lost their faith by focusing within the numerical pathogens and theology of the numerical positions of the Bible with all the numbers. And they scramble those numbers and they write those numbers on the wall and they try to connect the numbers together and they lose their mind over it. It's sad. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Listen. The men 
are fishermen. And if you've known fishermen, how big was the catch? How many of them did you catch? It's common language. It's the idea of how powerful this miracle was. They were big fish, and there were 153 of them. It's nothing mythical or sensational. It's nothing to deviate us from thinking, well, why on earth would the Holy Spirit say 153? They were fishermen. They wanted to know. And they had that, they had that information available and quite powerful to that end. Bring some of the fish with you, Jesus says. You have now caught. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. A very welcoming, hospitable application to their long night's labor. And none of the disciples ventured to question him at this time. Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? There's no need to be questioning this man. They know him. They know who he is. He is Jesus. He is the Christ, a man we saw crucified and die, placed in a tomb, and risen again from the dead. So Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time, verse 14, that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Remember, he had been seen from various eyewitnesses, and it simply speaks of the uh, times in which this took place. So here is a portion of scripture we are embarking on that will have conversation between Jesus and Peter, yet John must have been close by and others to hear the conversation. So when they had finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and let's pay attention to this, please. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, the understanding of the question is in this simplistic way. Peter, do you love me more than you love anything else, really? Do you love me more than your other disciple friends love me? Would you love me more than anyone? The idea is of priority. If the other disciples were to lose faith and go away, would you follow them or would you still follow me? What's the measurement of your faith towards me? If you go through deep sorrow, if you go through trial, if you go through temptation, if you go through loss, would you follow the world and its uh, uh, constructed uh, remedies, if you will? Would you fall from grace or would you remain within the fold? The idea has a great many directions to it. And it's quite easy to say what Peter says, but to practice it is quite a different, different thing. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And of course, the word love there is agape. And Peter says to Jesus, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. If you love me and you are willing to prioritize me, above and beyond anyone else or anything else, then you would qualify to be a minister of my church. A service, a servant. Tend to my lambs. Minister to them. Take care of them. So he said to him again a second time in verse 16, Jesus speaking to Simon, he says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me? And Peter says to him, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And Jesus says to him, well, shepherd my sheep. Teach them. Instruct them. If you indeed love me, and you prioritize me as the sole focus of your life, then you qualify to teach them, and that is a great service indeed. So, he said to him a third time in verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep, lead them. Lead them in accordance to the fulfilled inspiration of the Testament. Interesting how three times Christ asked Peter, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? I don't know if there's a connection there, but it's interesting nonetheless. Peter had withdrawn himself in an act of lawlessness, publicly so, from Jesus. In denial. We can't deny the Christ. That's a sin to deny the Christ. But you can find forgiveness for that sin. Peter sought within his life, if you will, a reinstatement, a renewal, and it was blessed upon him by Jesus. If you love me, you can work for me. And that indeed is a comforting thought that even someone as Peter, who sinned a great sin against his master, was able to once again work for him in his kingdom. In practical application, all of us at times may have denied Jesus. I have for many, many years. Again, I've spoken quite plainly to you how I hated God. I did not understand. I even entertained for a, a, a great many years that there is no God. Yet he has allowed us to change our thoughts, humble our ways, and be useful for him in his kingdom. Be a servant, teach the word, and lead the people the right way. Okay, Peter? Now, this was not going to be a task solely given to Peter, by the way. The same equal task would be given to all his apostles. Peter was not the sole proprietor of the keys of the kingdom, contrary to the things we have been taught in our upbringing and the ancestral traditions of religious views you and I were given by our parents and our grandparents in the communities we were raised in. And that's difficult, isn't it, to go against what we were given as a religious view because it may have been given by individuals we love dearly and trust greatly. Yet, the keys were not solely given to Peter, they were given to all the apostles. And what are the keys to the kingdom, my dear friends? In rightly handled scripture, the keys are the conditions the qualifications you must attain in order to follow the Christ. Because an unbeliever, one without faith, can't follow Christ's 
faithfully, how could that be the case if he does not believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and things of that kind. So the text continues, and we lead into verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Strange information. What on earth is Jesus speaking? What is the message he is conveying to Peter? Well, there was a time in which you did what you wanted to do your way. But now you've been commissioned to no longer belong to yourself. You have now entered the realm of denial of self in order to become useful as a worker in the church. And as a result of that, your lot in this ministry, Peter, is going to have to be death. And that will be murder. And that will be the cross. Peter's going to have to die for the cause of the gospel. I didn't make that up. John's letting us know exactly what he meant in verse 18 with verse 19. Watch. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. To follow the Christ means you are willing to follow him to the cross. We pray together that we need not find a day in our country where we must be murdered for our faith. Yet we are so ever crawling closer to that hour by the minute. Sadly. Yet we do not anticipate it, if you will, and we don't seek it. I don't want to have that day. I would not wish to be approached by our government corrupted into Roman entities all over again in order to tell us you will be murdered if you do not deny the Christ. You know, in the first century, under the oppression of the Roman Empire... They were told if they would not renounce their faith in the man Jesus Christ and bow down to the golden eagle, they would not receive their certificates, their papers, their documents, which would allow them commerce in the city. They would indeed be sacrificed, fed to the lions, put on a stake and burnt alive. And that's, that's scary, that's crazy, I don't want to go through that. But if that moment ever comes, we have to. Because we have something greater than what men can do to us. We have something eternal, of value, which transcends and conquers death. Follow me, he says to Peter. Now Peter's going to have to die. He's going to be murdered for the cause of the Christ. Now there has been speculation and assumption with no true validity or tangible evidence to this end, but it is said of Peter that he was crucified upside down. You may have heard that. There is no tangible evidence to that end. We do have writings from secular individuals in the 2nd and 3rd century that would point to Peter being crucified, but no mention of the request from Peter to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy of being crucified upright as his master previous. It may just have well happened. 
but there is no significant evidence that would lead us to defend such a proposition in an honorable court of law. So Peter here is receiving the information of his master. It is being heard by the disciples in his entourage. And Peter turning around in verse 20 has a curious question. And Peter always does have something to say, doesn't he? And he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, meaning Peter, he sees John. John is hearing this information. And to be sure, this is John, it says, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who is betraying you or betrays you? And we've read that. We've looked at that account. We knew what was taking place there in, in mention of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, and John being the one, of course, who had been on Jesus' bosom to, it, it speaks of the personal and intimate relationship that they had. So Peter, seeing John in verse 21, says to Jesus, well, Lord, what about John? If I have to be murdered for the cause, and you've asked me to, to uh, minister, to serve, to lead, to teach, what about John? John's one of us. And it's interesting because Jesus says to Peter in verse 22, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He's not telling Peter, who cares about John? Let John go do what he wants to do. No. John and Peter believe the same Christ. They've been instructed to become the recipients of the poured out power of the Holy Spirit, which will be recorded and witnessed and made for our availability in Acts chapter 1 and following. So, what is it that Jesus is speaking to Peter about in regards to John? Well, John has a different office and task, if you will. John's not going to be murdered for the cause. He has a different task. Though he's going to believe the same gospel, though he's going to work in the same kingdom, and though he is going to minister... And though he is going to have his leadership and his teaching and his, he's just not going to be murdered as you are going to be murdered. There's a different uh, uh, purpose, if you will, in the design of his will for John. And John very well was alive at a, a, as a very old man uh, writing the information he wrote in the New Testament. If I want him to, be, to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying, verse 23, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Meaning, again, he would not be murdered. Who? John. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. You see? It's not a matter of, oh, well, I guess John doesn't need to die. No, John must depart this earth as with all flesh, yet it would not be in the same manner as Peter. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple, verse 24, who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. 
There's so much information about Jesus in his ministry. He's done so much in his three years of active ministry that the world could not contain that information. It's interesting, in chapter 20, verse, 9, uh, verse 30 and 31, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, or the disciples, which are not written in this book. But what is written in the 66 books of the Holy Bible? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And my dear friends, with love and respect, these are the only books that are proven inspired. You and I may have been taught that there are other books that have been added, or other books that have been removed. We were taught wrong. And who chooses, who decides what is inspired and what is not? Men think men do. Men think men do. So men say, well, this book will be inspired. And this one will not. That is not the case. That is not the truth. The truth is, God chooses which book is inspired. And you can know the inspiration of a book by the book itself in correlation with other books of the same God-breathed manner. That is a study I highly, I highly encourage you to look into. We may have classes of that kind in the coming future, Lord willing, where we look at where did we get the Bible, how did we get the Bible, and how can we know it is inspired by God, those kind of things. So, it finishes off the chapter, and it finishes off the Gospel of John, the life and humanity of Jesus Christ, God on earth in flesh, speaking the information of His kingdom. And in conclusion, and always in invitation. The Christ established his kingdom. He died, he was buried, he rose again, he witnessed himself, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, accomplishing the information of the kingdom to which he was crowned king. We see that kingdom's doors open for citizenry in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. It came with great outpouring power from the Holy Spirit upon the twelve chosen vessels, the apostles, who stood up among the people and proclaimed the truth to the people. And those who were pierced of heart, who wanted salvation, who wanted forgiveness of sins, were told what they needed to do. And one must have independent accountability, a thinking mind, in order to know what he or she is doing. You and I may have been born and raised to think differently. That somehow our parents could bestow upon us their faith. That is false, and that is not scripturally mm -hmm. accurate. We must all independently come of a believing mind in order to hear the word and accept the love of Christ. That's what they were given, that's what they were told. What must we do in order to become legal citizens of your kingdom? They were told what they needed to do. They needed to change their minds. Now that may be just a change of religious worldview and belief they once held on to. Remember, Judaism was strong. And a great many of the Jews would have had ancestral, emotional investment in Judaism. They had to let that go. Some of them may have been Greek or Gentile, pagan, heathen. They had to let that go. Some of them may have practiced all sorts of lawlessness and perversions and immorality. They had to let that go. 
And they needed to call on the name of the Lord and be immersed, born again, out of water and the Spirit, and added to His kingdom as a legal citizen. That is a spiritual truth, and it takes faith to see it. What a powerful thing we have seen in Christ, that He would deliver to us this freely given gift of salvation. And it is so powerful that it pierces through the kingdoms of men. Men will never be able to destroy the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Christ, to which you and I are citizens of. So the invitation, of course, stands firm and true till this hour, and will forevermore until this earth ends. And that is this, if we believe in Christ, we will change our thoughts and change our lives in accordance to follow Him. And if we seek to do so, confessing Him as our Lord and Master, we qualify, as John would speak in chapter 1, we qualify to be saved. And that takes place when we are immersed and brought up out again. And that is such a wonderful commitment. It is marriage. It is the commitment of marriage. The commitment to Christ, when you come out of that water, He places you in His kingdom. Acts chapter 2, 41 and 47, so on. And we might go into the book of Acts as we journey further in our sermon sessions. We shall see how that will take place. Okay, my dear friends, that will conclude for this here time. We will move forward to a song.